So with that, let's open his word and see what he might have for us today. So we'll be in the book of Romans. And last week we did do a little fast forward for those of you that were, that were here uh, as we have just felt as your pastor to kind of uh, help, I hope was helpful, about reframing our minds as followers of Jesus in the midst of all of the, the political uh, divide going on in our world. And so we looked at Romans 13 and how as Jesus followers do we uh, rightly relate to government and to politics? So if you weren't here uh, for that, then you can go back online and, and listen to that. Hopefully it might give some, some thoughts and some clarity about uh, navigating what is such a, a divided and, and tumultuous world that we live in. And, and so with that, we had kind of skipped a couple of chapters, so we're going to go back to that, back into Romans chapter 10. But as we go back, sorry, I'm going to open this water, hold on. Takes too many hands. We're going to remember uh, sort of where we have been as we've gone through this book of Romans. So we remember that that what Paul is doing is he's writing this letter to this this uh, church in Rome. He's writing a letter to a church that sits in the middle of the empire that dominates the world, an empire that is dominated by this claim that Caesar is Lord, that lives under what's called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. That if you want stability, protection, provision, security in your life, then trust your life to Caesar, because he'll take care of you. And because he'll take care of you, he is worthy of your worship. To bow down at his altar and to give him your life, because he is Lord. And in the midst of that empire emerged this radical group of revolutionaries that made this outrageous claim that there was a different king. And that there's only one eternal, unshakable kingdom. And that is the kingdom of God. And this true king was this Palestinian born in a no-name place called Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth that has grown up as a rabbi underneath the Roman army, was crucified, executed, and yet miraculously, three days later, proved he was, in fact, the Son of God by rising from the dead. And now ascended and sits at the right hand of the creator God of this universe, reigning over everything in heaven and on earth. And that his eternal kingdom is available to us, every one of us. Regardless of where we were born, regardless of our story, regardless of our history, that God himself made, came, took on flesh, and made himself known in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And only Jesus is Lord. And everything else centers around that reality. And so in the midst of this empire, this group of, of Jesus followers navigating how do we live this life in this culture, in this world being faithful to Jesus, being true to his kingdom. And what emerged as this church was this, was this divided, uh, diverse group of people, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, young and old, 
in Paul recognizing that the potential in them to launch this good news mission out to the rest of the world, to the ends of the earth. But first, they needed to come together as God's people centered on his gospel. And so Paul writes this letter, rooting them back in the truths of this gospel of God, the grace of God poured out on all people, bringing them together as one new family adopted by God the Father, empowered by God's Spirit, no longer led by a spirit of fear, but sons and daughters of God. And so we get Romans 8, this sort of pinnacle chapter that begins with this declaration that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And then he continues on to the end of that chapter where he makes this declaration that nothing, no height nor depth, nothing in heaven on earth can separate us from that love of God in Jesus Christ. That God has, has bound us together in his love and nothing can take that away from us. And that love has been poured out on all people, Jews and Gentiles. But then he is faced with this painful question. He looks at his own people, the Jewish people who've rejected Jesus, and he looks at this, this blossoming movement of Gentiles who have received Jesus and are filled with his spirit and are growing in their faith. And then he looks back at his family and his heart breaks that they've missed the thing that was in front of them the entire time. And I don't know if you've ever had that feeling, or maybe you're sitting in that right now. Maybe when we paused to pray, it was a family member who's, who came to mind. Some relationship that feels strained, or you're watching somebody's life run off the tracks, or you're waiting for them to hit rock bottom, so then maybe they'll look up. And you're wondering, like, how could you not see? How could you not get this? Why are you running after the, down this road that so obviously leads to death when there's this other road that so obviously leads to life? How can you not see this? And so Paul, looking at his own family, he's like, how, like, what about my brothers and sisters, the Jews? The ones that God first made his self known to, that the covenant promises came to, the original adopted family of God. How have they missed Jesus? What is God doing? And we looked at a couple weeks ago how in Romans 9 that, that Paul uses this analogy of a potter who is working this clay. And then Paul pulls back these Old Testament prophets, uh, prophecies and, and talks about how that, that clay is resisting the potter. And doesn't the potter have every right to do whatever he wants with the clay? Who are you, O oh man? To tell the potter, God, your creator, what he's supposed to do. And these Old Testament prophets that had pointed back to say that the Jewish people, the ones that God came to initially, were resisting the work of God. Who God was trying to mold them and shape them to be. To pour his grace out through them to the rest of the world. And so just like a lump of clay that he can set aside that lump that's resistant to his way to, to form something new. That they're becoming now this vessel of mercy 
to pour out his grace not just on the Jews but also on the Gentiles. And he ends in 9 by saying in, in verse 30, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, and just to clarify it because uh, that word gets thrown around a lot, Gentiles are just simply everyone on the planet who's not Jewish. So in the Jewish mind who predominantly was reading this, this book originally, the world is divided into two groups of people, Jews themselves and everybody else. So what should we say then? That Gentiles, the rest of the world, that did not pursue righteousness, they weren't even trying to be right with God, is what he's saying, have somehow attained it? That they, they weren't even going for a relationship with the God who made them, and yet somehow they've, they have it? They've lived as, as rebellious sons and daughters, and yet somehow they're now adopted into the family? And he clarifies, but that is a righteousness, a rightness with God that is by faith. It's not by anything that they did, but it's purely by his grace. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, this, this set of standards by which if they could perform at a certain level to make God pleased with them, to, to earn God's salvation— did not succeed in reaching that law. In other words, the thing they were striving for, they fell short of. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, as if they could earn for themselves God's favor. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul's actually quoting, again, from the, the prophet Isaiah. I think I told you this a couple weeks ago, that of all of the Old Testament allusions that, that Paul, or references, scripture references that Paul uses in all of his letters, and there's a lot of them, 30% of them, a third of every Old Testament reference he uses, are in these three chapters, Romans 9 through 11. So it is Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament. So to really understand what Paul is saying, you have to kind of know where, what he's pulling from. And so if in your Bible there you want to write down the two references that he's actually merging together into one is Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16. Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16. And he uses this picture of a foundation stone. Now, have you ever been at like a historic building or actually some churches that on the corner of the building, you'll see this the cornerstone and often they'll etch, they'll like uh, put a date in it or sometimes there'll be like a memorial plate. When we were up at uh, Grace Capital City, the, the Grace Church in Washington, D.C., and uh, praying over that building that they are uh, hoping to get there um, down the street from the White House. And, and it's this old historic church. And on the, on the corner of the church is this big giant stone. And on the stone it says 1896. Laid there as they built the rest of the church. Now the reality is, is that for most buildings, that, that true foundation stone that the rest of the, uh, that the, the building or the house is built on is, is below the ground, Right? If you've ever built a house, you know that that's like the most painful part of the entire process because it looks like nothing is happening, doesn't it? As they dig down and they, they lay the foundation, and it's not until finally they begin to frame up the house and build on that foundation that you finally see what was intended all along. 
But this picture that the prophets give in Isaiah is as if you could imagine that foundation stone that the rest of the house is built on. That corner that, that will be the bedrock for the rest of the building. As if it was just sitting at ground level. And you can imagine that, that this is the corner, the foundation upon which everything else is laid. But then imagine if in the middle of the night, going back to that, that, uh, that church in Washington, D.C., back in 1896, as they gathered around that giant stone and prayed over it and recognized that we're going to build a church on this place. And they all went home. And later that night, in the dark of that alley, Somebody comes walking by, doesn't see this giant stone there in the middle of the street, and slams right into it. And Paul's using this picture of saying what God had intended to build his temple, his presence on, that he is, is with his people, that God would, what God intended for those that don't see it for what it is, they're slamming against it. And in Isaiah, both of those passages refer to this coming king. That the foundation of God's temple has been laid. But that those who don't believe in him, in this Messiah who's coming, are going to trip on the stone and fall flat on their face. And the radical thing that Paul is saying, which for us is may not come across as, as big of a deal as when Paul is making this declaration, is that this isn't a change of plans for God. It's not like his people, the Jews, that were supposed to, to embody his presence and his power be a light to the nations, that, that as if they didn't get it, and then, Paul, and then God's sitting up in heaven going, man, now what am I going to do? Time to go to plan B, I guess. But instead, what he's saying is, like, this was never a change of plans. This was actually the plan all along. Paul continued, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal, a passion for God, but it's not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For, God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And if you're a Bible, you want to circle that word, the end of the law. It's the Greek word telos. But actually, it doesn't mean the end as in like the, the closing. It actually means the end as the goal or the fulfillment. What the law was striving to for the entire time, what the law was pointing to all along, was Jesus. Hebrews 10.1 says that, that the law was but a shadow of the good things to come. That everything in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. Which means that we can now, standing on this side of Jesus, look back at the Old Testament and see how everything was a picture or a prophecy pointing to him. Jesus was the point all along. All of history was flowing towards Jesus, and from Jesus, all of history now flows. He is the center of everything. 
And we can understand that from a biblical story, a cosmic level. But that is true in your life as well. This isn't just interesting theological uh, thoughts. This is the reality, the invitation of God into our lives. For Jesus to become the center point of everything we are and everything we do. That everything in your life was pointing towards Jesus, even when you didn't see it. And then recognizing Jesus, surrendering to him by faith, receiving this free gift of grace in God. Everything from in your life now flows from Jesus. He becomes the center of our story. He's the one that gives our lives meaning. We're not just floating around in, in the world trying to make a name for ourselves or trying to have some kind of significance. Our lives, our stories are rooted in the reality of Jesus. Your story has meaning and impact because of Jesus. Your identity is grounded and found only in Jesus. And as long as we are striving to find a name or a story apart from Jesus, we are lost and wandering and anxious and striving. But the invitation of God, the gospel, is that our, our center gets set in the reality of God. In Christ. Can you receive that? Can you see that? Can you see how even the times that you're blind and ignorant, slamming into the stone, your, your life hitting a dead end, how God can use even all of that to point you to him and then from him give you direction and purpose, meaning and significance? So Paul continues, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the, into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a couple of things in there that are, are a little bit confusing, a little bit weird. And one of those is at the beginning here, this idea of, of don't say in your heart, who's going to ascend that brings Christ down, or who's going to descend that's going to try to bring Christ up. But this is actually a reference, uh, again, if you're in your Bible, you want to write the reference. It's, it's out of Deuteronomy 30. And if you remember that the story in Deuteronomy is that Moses, having led the people out of slavery in Egypt and, and through the desert in towards the promised land, ha had been unfaithful to God's command. And so God had told him, you can lead the people to the edge of the promised land, but you're not going to be allowed to lead them into it. 
And so your disciple, Joshua, is going to actually be the one to cross the Jordan River and to take the people into, into my promises. And so this incredible picture, again, remember, all of these pictures are ultimately pointing to Jesus. But this incredible picture of, of God leading his people out of slavery towards his promises through the wilderness. And then Moses, right before he dies, he stands up on a mountain and he gives his final sermon. To all of the people of God as they're about to step into the promised land. That's the book of Deuteronomy. And at the, Deut- at the, at the book of, sorry, at, at the end of Deuteronomy, we're in, in this spot between two mountains, Mount Ebal and the Mount Gerizim. And those two mountains represented the blessings and the curses of God. And Moses stood there between these mountains and he faced the people, and this is what he said I have set before you today. Life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. The Lord your God has commanded you to hear his voice and to follow him with your whole heart and your whole mind. And if you do, if you listen to his voice, his blessings are going to pour out in your family. His blessings are going to pour out on your fields. His blessings are going to pour out on the next generation. He is with you, and he is for you. Just keep listening to his voice. I'm paraphrasing the end of Deuteronomy. But, he says, if you don't listen to his voice, if you wander away and follow after other gods, then his curses will come upon you, on your family and on your fields, on your future. And then he says this, he gives this incredibly prophetic word. He says, in fact, here's what's going to happen. It's like a grandfather who knows his children. That's like, let me just go on and tell you what your teenage years are going to be like. He's like, here's what's going to happen. You're going to step into the promises of God, into this promised land, and you're going to listen for a little while, and you're going to experience his blessings, and it's going to be good. But then you're going to get apathetic, and you're going to forget and you're going to quit listening. And when you do, you'll receive his curses. His hand of protection will be removed from you, in other words. And you'll be at the mercy of the nations around you. And those nations, they're going to come in, and they're going to scatter you. But, but, God will not forget you. He will remain faithful to his covenant, even when you're not. And then De- Deuteronomy 30 gives this fresh word, this further promise that God commits himself to. That when Israel has gone into exile, and that they might think that everything is finished, the story is over, they've lost the promises, God tells them that if they will turn back to, them, to him, even while they're in, in exile, he will rescue them. And even more specifically, he promises to transform them, to give them a new heart, so they actually have the power to keep his law. And he continues on, and he gives this this word, what he says, Moses says in Deuteronomy, is that it won't be a matter of people needing to climb up to heaven to get to God, and they won't have to go across the sea into the depths to find it, but instead, God's word will come and find them. It'll be near to them. Which is amazing. Because thousands of years later, 
John will begin his gospel by saying that the word who was with God in the beginning has taken on flesh full of grace and truth and moved into the neighborhood. And that word, the word that is near, that found God's people, even when they were rebellious and in exile, is Jesus. And that only through Jesus will this inner transformation take place that we can actually live loving God with our whole heart and our whole being. That they kept waiting for this external change, a circumcision of the flesh that would mark them as belonging to God. But God knew that what they needed wasn't an external change. They didn't even need to be rescued from their circumstances. That God's plan was an internal and an eternal transformation, a circumcision of the heart, that no external circumstances can change, a salvation of the soul. And that salvation came. And as Paul writes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he makes this incredible connection with the Lord who is Yahweh, the God of Israel. In the middle of Rome, who claimed Caesar as Lord and said, no, the true God, the only God, is Jesus. And that those who confess with their mouths and believe in their hearts are saved by the grace of God. And that reality is true today just as it was 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote these words. The invitation of God still stands. In the midst of all the craziness of this world, in the midst of our pain and our circumstances, the gospel still goes forth. There's a God who sees you, who knows you, who loves you, who never gave up on you, and made a way that your heart could be reconnected to his. And in doing so, that he began an inner work, a transforming work in your soul, that the kingdom of God within, that no circumstance with ex external circumstance can change. And if you want to write next to 1013, that phrase, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, that might sound familiar because it actually comes from the prophet Joel in Joel 2.32, but it's also the first words that Peter declared after being filled with the Spirit and heading out in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. That the time has come, it's been fulfilled, the Spirit of God is being poured out in Christ and everyone who calls on his name will be saved. Will you set your heart on the things of God as revealed in Jesus? To believe, to set our faith in, to trust in the work of God in Christ that we can never earn and we will never deserve. Do you believe? 
and believing, do you confess? Can you acknowledge out loud with your words in your life that Jesus is Lord? This is the whole point of baptism. Baptism is this public declaration of that confession. That's not just simply this secret thing that we've decided to begin to follow Jesus as an interesting teacher, or a, ph- a philosopher, or even religious scholar. But this declaration that Jesus now has my full allegiance. And this incredible picture of baptism is this going into the water. This old life that we put to death at the cross with, with Jesus. And then we come up out of the water, this new birth into a new life, invited by God into relationship with him. This image of baptism, that even coming up out of the water, that first breath, that gasping for air, this picture of of God's spirit filling those who have believed and confessed Jesus as their Lord. It's this incredible picture of a change of allegiance. And even as that coming up out of that water and filled with that spirit and then opening eyes and surrounded by this new family of faith. And Paul's saying that in baptism as this, as this prophetic picture of the spiritual reality, that you're given a new identity, a new life, and a new family. For those who believe in their heart, and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so on Wednesday night, we're going to get to, to baptize. Uh, I think there's about 10 kids and students that are getting baptized. And even to extend uh, or to ask the question in, this morning. Have you publicly professed your faith in Christ? Been obedient to Jesus in Matthew 28 when it He commands his followers to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I commanded you. And so I invite you, if that's not been a part of your faith journey, of your story rooted in Christ, centered in him, this belief in your heart, this confession with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Will you join us Wednesday as we gather up here to celebrate new faith and new life in Christ with the celebration of baptism? If that's something that you're interested in, come find me afterwards or any of our elders or staff. We'd love to have that conversation. If you're wrestling with what it means to begin to follow Jesus, to trust him as Lord and Savior, find one of us. It's the point of all of this. At the end of the day, it's really the only thing that matters. And then we'll end with this, where Paul continues. So if this is true, Paul's saying, that for everyone who calls on Jesus, believes in their heart, they will be saved, reconciled, restored to God. But how then, he asks, will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we have this, not just invitation to receive, but this challenge to go. 
having confessed and believed, received the grace of God in Christ, made, made known to us through Jesus. We're now invited to be the people that go and speak this word of truth, of life and love and grace. This gospel story that's changed our lives is transforming our hearts and our minds. And to be the people that go. Because how else will they know? In Isaiah, that picture actually is how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news. And it's interesting that Paul combines that picture with this picture of Moses standing between this mountain of blessing and cursing, life and death. With this question of who will go and how will they hear unless we go. A number of years ago, YWAM is this ministry organization that has a heart for mission and taking the gospel and making disciples among the nations. And they, they use this word picture of, of the seven mountains of influence of culture. These seven places of, of power in our world that influence and shape our world. And the seven mountains that they named, and they've gone through different iterations of this, but basically the mountain of religion, the mountain of family, the mountain of education, the mountain of government, the mountain of, of media, of arts and entertainment, and then the mountain of business. And so it's with this picture of, of these mountains of influence in our world that we, we hold on to this other picture of this, this word that goes forth, this word of grace and transformation. And God inviting his people to be his feet, to go into those places. And so the question I have for us, Grace Monroe, is how are we being shaped by this good news in a way that we are now going and telling of what God has done for us? How are we stepping into those other mountains? Just as Moses stood between the mountains of blessing and cursing, life and death, and recognizing in these places of power and these places of pain that the gospel changes lives and Jesus is our only hope. Like how are we stepping into schools, this mountain of education? Those of you that own and, and run businesses, how is your business becoming a, a place of light and life, influence and justice and transformation? For media, those of you who are artists and creatives, like they, Christians should be making the, the most beautiful music and the best art out there. Not just cheesy songs that no one really wants to listen to. We, we, as Jesus people are called to be transformative agents in this world, that was the vision and the picture God gave us for Grace Monroe. What would it look like for a community of people to be woken up to the reality of God amongst them and God to, to awaken in them that kingdom dream, that unique thing that is in you to release into this world? And what would it look like for a community of people to be released into the community with love and grace being transformed and moving forward in humble, compassionate, sacrificial love, could we really change a city? And could a city, this little no-name place called Monroe, Georgia, filled with Jesus people living out their kingdom calling, rooted in their God-given identity, actually change the world? Is that a ridiculous thought? Or is that just not the exact same kind of thing that God would want to do? from no-name places and no-name people topple what, feel, what looks like and feels like the, the unstoppable mountains of power. That's what we're called to. Confess, believe, go and tell the good news 
that is as near to you as your own breath. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you for what Paul reminded that little church in Rome that I had to guess felt super powerless in the face of everything going on around them. And that you were positioning to change the world. To go to the ends of the earth. And God, if that's what you have for us, then we say yes. This little church that feels, that can so easily feel overwhelmed by everything else going on in the world around us. And maybe, God, that you're positioning us working in us your identity and your dreams to take this good news to the ends of the earth. So God, we say yes to whatever you have for us. If that is to walk across the street to a neighbor or to go pray with a coworker, Lord, what are you inviting us into? How are you inviting us to respond? And God, for anyone in this room that that first step is simply just to receive your grace in Christ, to confess their need for you and their brokenness and their sin and their failures, that you reach into that mess. <laughs> you don't turn from us in shame. You don't heap upon us guilt. But God, you offer us forgiveness and grace. And you call us sons and daughters. And you fill us with your spirit. May we receive this good news of life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as we worship, we have communion available. I invite you to, to pray. We have our prayer team in the back of the room, whatever's going on in your life. And let's use this time just to respond to whatever God is doing.